as soon as I leave here home and finish my stuff and I head out to Twin Lakes and I preach, it's going to be a good week. I'm looking forward to it. would appreciate your prayers. Looking forward to being able to bring God's Word to the campers, middle school and elementary campers. And then the staff is there last week, and they've been burning the candle at both ends all summer. And so pray for them uh, to be able to stay awake while I'm speaking and uh, all of the other things that are going on. It says it'll be a good week. Looking forward to it. Um, in the last week of June, every year, we hold a soccer camp at Eastside, right? And, uh, and it's a great experience if you've been a part of it. Love soccer, uh, running the soccer camp. Um, I actually played soccer for eight, ten years growing up, and then I'm involved in North Montgomery Youth Soccer League, helping lead that program as well. Soccer's kind of a big part of my life. It's not my favorite sport, but it's like my second favorite. It's, so anyway, it's, it's really high up there, and I do love soccer. Uh, this past year, we had uh, two little ones uh, who, from our family, uh, were getting getting a love for the game at different levels. The youngest, at age four, uh, I watched the first game and said, oh dear, I need to do some coaching. So I said, you need to get in there and get some kicks, because what she would do is she would watch the ball go by and watch the ball go by, and she just kind of stood there, and then she sat down in the field, right? And, and, she, and, and I was talking to another parent whose, whose son was super content at that age, sitting in the middle of the field playing in the mud. Didn't bother him at all that people were running by him with cleats or that he was not getting the opportunity to score a goal. He was just happy sitting and playing in the mud. And, uh, and so for me to develop in her a love for the game meant go kick the ball. And so the rest of that week I heard, Daddy, I got kicks. Yes, all right. So I was pretty excited about that. She's learning. All right. The, the six-year-old, though, she's at a whole new level of learning to love the game. And, uh, and she's starting to understand that if I dribble this ball and I put it in the back of the net, that's awesome. And, uh, and so she was a little tornado out on the field as she, um, as she dribbled that ball around, as she kicked the ball and then got several goals. She was just super pumped. She's learning to love the game too. Uh, there's different levels of love of the game. But we're all at the stage of life where... If we could play, if we would play, you understand the point of the game, right? Win, right? You put the ball in the back of the net and, and you work together as a team to get that ball down the field to advance and you play to win or you would if you could. It doesn't make much sense to get out on the field and just get kicks. Um, however, winning at all costs is just as bad as not understanding the point of the game. And what do you call a person who values winning at all costs in the game of soccer? A professional, right? And, uh, and so they, they're out there, and, uh, okay, I, I, I broad brush stroke just for the sake of laughs, but, um, but that's kind of what happened in this game. I want you to pay close attention to the time in the top left corner, see how much time there's? There's 90 minutes in a game, two 45-minute halves, and then uh, after that comes stoppage time. And in this particular game, there were about four minutes of stoppage time, and only the ref knows how much time that actually is. So the game's going on. It's to the wire. Watch what happens at the end.
We'll, we're working on it. All right. So, so if you play to win, that's a good thing. If you, if you play to win at all costs and you foul people all the way down the field, what does that get you? Well, in this particular scenario, I'll just go ahead and, and give them the, uh, the mental picture. Okay? In this particular scenario, there's, there's one team that's coming down the field. There is 93 and a half minutes on the clock. And, uh, and, and so they come down, they center the ball in. The goalie goes up to catch the ball, and another player from the opposing team comes up to head the ball. And all you see from a distance is the goalie and the player both fall down, and the ball goes squirting out. Okay? Oh, goes like this. All right. There's a little sound to it, too. So you see how he falls down? Ball's going to go back into the middle of the field. Cross. Header. Score! In the, if you've ever watched soccer uh, internationally, you got the, ref, the announcer going, Goal! forever, right? And then you see about 15 different replays. But what just happened there? This isn't American football. And that's what the referee is signaling. You can see the score go from 1-0 with less than 30 seconds left in the game to 0-0. Because he fouled. You can't stiff arm the goalie. Alright? That's, that's totally illegal. Um... When, when you understand the point of the game, you want to play to win, but you've got to play according to the rules. You've got to play in a way that will earn a score. Now, sports is a microcosm of life. And, uh, and so if we wanted to take this soccer analogy and play it backwards, the church would be God's team. And every day, we who are God's church get up and we go out into the field of life to play God's game. And when we go out to play, we have God the Father as the ultimate referee, and we have Jesus Christ, our loving Savior, who is the perfect coach. He's played the game, so to speak. He lived as a man, and then he also lived perfectly, and he is, no, he is more qualified than anyone to be able to coach us to victory. And throughout the scriptures, we have his coaching manual, his playbook, and he tells us, play to win. Get in the spiritual game and play to win. You see that several times throughout the scriptures. If we were to look at Colossians, or sorry, Romans 12.11, it would say, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Okay, so there's an energy, there's a compulsion in this to get out in the spiritual game field and play to win. There's also Colossians 3.23, which camp staff knows quite well, right? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men. Colossians 3.23. What does heartily mean? The Greek word there is exukase. All right? It's out of the soul. It's from the center of my being. It means with conviction, with heart. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord. Don't get out on the field and sit down and pick dandelions. And Jude 3 says, 
that uh, this is Jude urging the believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is a fight that is going on in the spiritual game, all right, a, uh, or in the spiritual battlefield, because we've left the game analogy, all right, but. Uh, but we are not to sit passively in the stands, mildly distracted by the movement of the ball down the field, no matter what age or what stage of life we are at. If we are in Christ, the goal is move the ball, advance the cause of Christ, spread the name of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the glory of God goes to the whole world. That's our, that's our goal. But there's a lot of pushback to that in our world. And it goes against the grain to encourage people to treat church differently than a spectator sport. So people might ask, why do you even care, Pastor Nate? You just do your thing, I'll do mine. And I would say that as a pastor, there's a couple reasons why I care. First of all, because it's a team sport. And when genuine followers of Jesus Christ sit on the sidelines or sit down on the field or they, they treat the, the game of faith in Christ as, as something you can just eat popcorn in the stands and enjoy your nachos and your Coke with, then, then that has an impact on the rest of the players on the field, does it not? And so this is a team sport. This is something that God calls all of us to bind together to do. But not only that, there's a more eternal reason and one that hits closer to home to those who would, who would think that, um, that church is a spectator sport. It's that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day and give account for our lives. And God is going to deal out awards for those who have played with heart, with zeal, who have laid it all on the field, left it all on the field. And it's going to be a really shameful time for those who have treated church and the ministry that God calls the church to as a spectator sport. Not really getting involved, not really caring, not sharing the gospel with anybody, not diligent in prayer, but just kind of lazy. Or maybe just really lazy. What will he have to give you at that point in time? What kind of shame will that feel at that point in time? I don't want that for you. And so for that reason, I urge you to get in the game. Play the spiritual game and play to win. Avoid the future shame that comes from treating church as a spectator, spectator sport. Move the ball down the field. Use your gifts. Use your abilities. Grow. We need people who will pray hard at home and come to church prayer meetings and pray so that the ministry of God is supported by God as we call to Him and ask Him to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we could manipulate and do in our own strength. And we need people who are given to hospitality. Our coffee people, our, our, um, our custodians, our, our greeters, who are our facility team who work hard behind the scenes to make this building hospitable and that people are welcomed in. We need pastors and teachers. We need helpers in the classes who are studying the Word of God, teaching it in clear and compelling ways. We need security people to keep people out. Who ought not to, uh, or who, who would like to do harm in a service? We need deacons touching base with church family 
Caring well for them. And we need people communicating well with their deacons so that we're aware and we, we can minister to those in need. We need small groups of people who will draw close to one another throughout the week, encouraging one another on, building one another up so that we don't have people dying from heat stroke. We need people who will give of the overflow that God has given to them and share so that the expenses of the ministry are covered and that the, uh, the outreach ministries that can go forward. And we need people to contribute in all of these areas and more. I haven't touched on all of them. But you know what happens when all that stuff starts to happen? The church comes together as a team. And that is dynamic. And that is what I love about pastoring. When the church starts to come together and function like a team ought to function, giving as you're able, allowing God to use you, we're building one another up, the gospel's going forth, people are changed, they're growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Savior. And that's just downright exciting. People know and love and live for Jesus. We are disciples. We make disciples of Jesus Christ. These are some of the things that we've been talking about more and more. How can we do this better? And I urge you to get in the spiritual game and play to win by prayerfully giving yourself wholeheartedly to the work of evangelism and discipleship. Wholeheartedly. It's not a spectator sport. Now, I have to throw in a caveat here because some of you may be feeling unnecessarily guilty. And I don't want to put a burden of guilt on you that's not necessary. That's not from God. Sometimes you end up on the disabled list. Injured reserve. God changes your circumstances. And you can't contribute to the work of ministry like you would like to because of physical, financial, or schedule limitations. Okay? This, this happens. This happened to the Apostle Paul. I mean, you end up in jail for a couple of years. You're like, that was not in my five-year strategic plan. I'm sure that's where he was, that, that he struggled with that at times. But you know what? He didn't look at that setback as a setback. It was rather God turning him towards a new door of opportunity. And so in jail for a couple of years, what's he do to every prison guard who comes his way? Sharing the gospel. And he's praying praying with all of his heart for the believers in the churches that he started. That was just as significant of ministry. It's different, but he's still in the game, in jail. And he's writing letters to build up and teach and encourage. He's doing what he can, where he can, so that the goal, so that the goal uh, continues to advance. And I want to encourage you, if you're dealing with setbacks... Trust God's hand in your trials because Paul going to prison wasn't an accident. And a family member who falls ill and you having to, to back out of something you were involved ministry-wise to care for them is still a good thing. And God's opening new doors of opportunity, but you can't fight what God's doing there. Trust His hand. Let Him turn you and, and, and see that as, in, as a new opportunity that He's redirecting you to, something you didn't anticipate. But that can still be good. Just trust his direction in that. Um, I think that will help you avoid the shame of just being passive. But there's another kind of shame in the spiritual game. And it's the shame of loveless ministry. Loveless ministry. 
God wants us to advance the ball down the field spiritually. And so we, uh, having lived in Africa, I can say Americans are especially, it's a nice way to say it, assertive. We're very um, production-oriented. We want to be productive. Um, Africa isn't. And, um, and personally, I like to be very productive. But can you imagine somebody who is bent on productivity, and they're all about what God's called them to do, and they steamroll everybody else in the way, much like that goalie got stiff-armed in the opening illustration? through loveless ministry? What did the referee in the opening illustration do to the goal that was scored? Took it away. What does God do when we, in the name of serving Him, love people, or do not love people? There's no value in that. And at the end of the day, what do you have to be thankful for and to give God as a, as a sacrifice, as an offering? You've got nothing. Would you flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a passage where Paul lays out the essential, um, the essential quality that the church in Corinth was missing. It's a character quality that God gives to us that He teaches us to live with and to manifest day in and day out as we play the spiritual game. It's love. And when this is missing, everything changes. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1 says, or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If I had to summarize what this means in a sentence, it would be this little equation here. And I have... Quit being able to advance this, Matt, so something's changed. Can you advance me a slide? All right. He's going to work on that. Here's the little equation. You, you have it on your, on your note sheet. Hero minus love equals zero. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. You want to be a spiritual hero? but you don't want to do it in a loving way, what's it count for? Zero. Hero minus love is zero. You know, God's keeping the spiritual score. And as he talks in verse 1, he talks about people who speak in the tongues of men and of angels. When we think of spiritual heroes, you, you usually think of people who are great talkers. And they can get up and they can wow a crowd. And people are just like, wow, just the way he says it just really connects with me. Hero! But if I do that without love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Two-year-old 
Think two-year-old marching around the house. How about verse 2? We think of spiritual heroes as powerful, gifted, wise, and intelligent. But even if we could understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if we had all faith, even if we could say, there's no mountains in Indiana, but even if we could say to the dunes in the northern part of Indiana, go, go into the lake. But we don't have love. God's keeping the spiritual scorebook and it's a zero. Foul. Penalty. No good, no goal. And then how about verse 3? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, you think about who our culture views as everyday heroes. It would be people like our police, our firemen, civil, civil servants, all right? All of these people are veterans, and they are. But what's Paul's point? They could do all of that, and people in the church could give of their time all the time. You could sacrifice your retirement and, and come and serve at church and do so in an unloving way. And in God's spiritual scorebook, it doesn't match what's in ours. It looks really good, but if there's no love, it counts for nothing. Because hero minus love is zero. On your line, you have a bunch of pluses. This is an equation, all right? Because you see the equal sign at the end. I want you to take an O, all right, and, and put that in between every plus. You should have about 25 by the time you're done, all right? And if every O were a spiritual accomplishment, that would look pretty good, right? Look at what I did for you, God. Look at the time I gave to you, God. Look at all the ways I've sacrificed myself. Look how I used my gifts. It's pretty incredible. But now, if you take all those O's, and this is actually a math equation, what does it add up to? If, if, you're, if your ledger's in the red, it's not good. Okay. Now, I know technically a zero is, is good in math. I, I get that. But what I, my point is, is that you can add it all up, and if there is no love, it equals nothing in God's scorebook. So let me give you another, another equation that may help. Ambition plus agape, which is God's kind of love, equals award. That is what He prizes. That is what He gives award for. When we do the right things in the right way, he gives great reward. Ambition plus agape is award. And so all it takes in this rewritten equation is to change one number. If I've done a bunch of stuff without love, but I, do, I, I change one number, see the six at the beginning of the equation, now how much does it add up to? Something, right? So when we add love, to whatever we are doing in the name of the Lord, it, it adds value. It gives value. I would ask you, which equation better characterizes your spiritual performance? Hero minus love or agape plus ambition? It's just a reflection question for you to think on. 
as you go home. But God wants you to score. And we might as well play to win if he's called us. And so it's my desire as a pastor to raise up a generation, a church full, a a camp full of people who will live with the same kind of bold, selfless love as Jesus Christ. Something that will count. Would you turn in your Bibles back to John chapter 13? Because it's time for us as we begin to wind things down to look to the Savior Jesus' ambition was to love his Father and to love others. Now, the Old Testament law told the, uh, told the people of God how to love. It says in Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus rewrites that. He gives them a new command. And in John 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what this means? When we love as Jesus has loved, it means we no longer are looking to ourselves, a flawed model of love, for how to love other people. But we have a perfect example in Jesus Christ. Looking at ourselves is kind of like trying to get your image in a shattered mirror. It may all still be together, but there's so many cracks in it. We would say those cracks are from sin. Passed down from one generation to another in in Romans chapter 3, it spells it out pretty quickly how cracked our mirrors are. And when we look to ourselves, it's tough because there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so when we look at who we are, corrupted from the inside out, it's hard to love the right way. But that's why Jesus Christ has given us Himself so that we will perpetually look back to Him. And if God has saved you, keep looking back to Him for the example of love that you need. When Jesus Christ came into the world, He loved us with an everlasting love. And He showed us, He talked about the greatest kind of love. Greater love, John 15, uh, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then what does he do? He lays down his life. But not for his friends. For his friends and his enemies. Those who were in rebellion against him. And 1 John 4.19 reminds us that we didn't love him first. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And church, I, I, I want us to get this. While we were sinners, a holy God who hates sin, willingly took our sin on himself. Why would he do that? To pay our penalty. And only his blood could wash away our sin. And so what does he do? He even gives his blood. And I am so thankful that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away my sin. That's the sad news that brings the good news of the gospel That what Jesus did 2,000 years ago can still be so effective for us today. This is the message we take to our world. 
We want them to understand that if they'll simply repent and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, He'll forgive. He'll welcome them into His family. No matter what they've done, no matter how good they appear in the eyes of others, they're still sinners. And then, once they embrace the love of God for them, that new command makes sense. And you can live it out toward others by the power of the Spirit of God in you. And He begins to grow in us this perfect love. He he strengthens us by His Holy Spirit to show the same kind of agape to the world. Now, how do you see that in action in Jesus' life? I mean, you can go to the cross, but we've talked about the cross. Flip back to the first part of this chapter, John 13, because this is where I want us to end in awe of what Jesus did to show love to his disciples. I want you to look to the bold love of Christ and to love as Jesus Christ has loved you, which is perfectly illustrated in verses 1 through 20. Now, we're not going to read all of these, but there are three things. This passage says Jesus knows three things. Okay? It says Jesus knew, Jesus knew, Jesus knew. And every single one of them becomes a key to unlocking the kind of love that Jesus had that we ought to be replicating. So read with me, if you would, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I know it's the morning service, but I want a little feedback. What does Jesus know from verse 1? He knows he's, it's time to depart, right? He's going to die. And it's going to happen really soon. Like, he's not going to get any more nights with the disciples. This is it. Have you ever come to the end of a phase of your life? End of a job, end of school. Right? What do we call that epidemic that strikes seniors when they're about ready to graduate? Senioritis, right? And it sets in badly, especially if their GPA is secure, right? It sets in really hard. Like, why do I even care? This is Jesus' last hour. Why should he even care? He's got three years where he's taught these disciples about love. He's taught them the truth. He's equipped them for three years. What's one more night? He knows it's his last hour. He could quit. He could coast. What's he do? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The love of Jesus never quits, and it never coasts. He's still playing to win. He's still striving hard. Why? Well, first of all, because it's the right thing to do to glorify the Father. But the disciples still don't get it. And so, not only does he refuse to quit, he refuse to take his foot off the gas, so to speak, He shows them the fullest extent of his love, which is what it literally means when it says he loved them to the end. This is the fullest extent that I can show you here on earth. And the next thing that Jesus knows in verses 3 through 5 
helps us to understand this more fully. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does Jesus know? And again, I'm looking for feedback. What does Jesus know in verse 3? A little louder. Father's given him all things, which basically means he's the boss. Right? There is no one more powerful than him. Is this common behavior for the most powerful man in the world? Is this, how, is this how powerful men today act? Powerful women today act? If you're the CEO of a billion dollar company, is this what you do? Jesus knows that all things have been given to Him. He has all power. And so how does He exercise it? Hey, wash my feet. No, He gets up, grabs a towel. And while this common courtesy should have been done by, in that culture, the lowest of the low, Jesus, the boss, does it. And Peter is like, no, 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 because we don't understand how much of an offense this is. Like, you can't do this, Jesus. And Jesus has to set him straight and say, no, I need to. And then he says, towards the end of this particular section, um, that uh, I needed to do this. Um, I can't find it right now. Anyway, uh, oh, it, that's right. It's after verse 12 where he explains to them what he has been doing. You also ought to wash one another's feet. You also, not necessarily that foot washing is this ordinance that we need to do, but this servant heart, this servant mentality that's willing to do the dirty work. Uh, is, that's what Jesus um, is calling us to do. And so what, what he encourages us to do, what I would encourage you to put in your notes, love in the most humbling ways necessary. This is what the disciples needed. They didn't need to see him, uh, him throw a mountain into a lake. They needed to see him wash their feet. Instead of demanding that they treat him as great, they, they grew to respect his greatness because he served them. This posture of a servant is how we show love to other people. When we lay our lives down, now I know we said earlier you can do this kind of thing without love, but without love you won't do this kind of a thing. Jesus has plenty of reason why he shouldn't wash their feet. And yet he does. Out of love. Verse 11 explains the third thing Jesus knows. He says he knew who was to betray him. And that's all we'll need to read. Who was going to betray Jesus? Judas. And he's still in the circle. He's still around the table. What do you think that, that interaction was like? 
when Jesus got around to Judas's feet, knowing that in less than 30 minutes, he's going to leave the room and he's going to go sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What do you think is going on in Jesus' mind? From, the, from a human standpoint, what's going on? You think this is tough? You ever been betrayed? You ever been hurt? I mean, this is like knowing you're going to get hurt and then staring Judas in the face and washing his feet with extra care and then giving him permission to go. Everything in your body when you've been hurt or you know you're going to get hurt cries out for control. And you want to control that other person. But you can't. But you can love them. And in so doing, you'll show Jesus Christ to your world. This is how we advance the ball down the field. This is how we play to win. We don't worry about what other people do to us. We love even those who don't love us. And I encourage you, church family, to shower people with, when you feel cutting them to shreds with your words. Look on them with love. Care for them with gentleness. Hold your tongue and be a beacon of light when for revenge is all that would is is all consuming. You know, you can be a spiritual hero by the power of God. You can live boldly for Jesus Christ with the same kind of love that Jesus had for the world. And I want to leave you this morning encouraged to think about who God wants you to love. Because if it doesn't leave here, then you got a line full of zeros. There's a foul. you got no spiritual score. The love of God can fix a floundering relationship, but you have to be willing to show them the fullest extent of God's love. Not your own, God's. And so I encourage you to go all the way, to serve and do the dirty work, and to be abounding in grace. It's going to take you praying hard to be able to do that. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, you are able. Able to overcome your fatigue. Able to overcome any excuse. And I urge you to do it. Because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus has done for all of us. So let's go and do likewise. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for loving us with additional love and modeling it for us as you loved your disciples to the end. Showing them the fullest extent of your love. God, forgive us when we've misrepresented you and thought of you as some angry, domineering God up in the clouds. Because you've come near in gentleness and in sacrifice and given us incredible love, incredible grace, and I pray that we would be a people changed by your love, going out and living boldly for you, saying no to our flesh and the temptations there, and living wholeheartedly for you. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.